This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. We're rejoining our conversation with cognitive psychologist and best-selling author Steven Pinker today. Part one of the discussion came out in our last episode and is available now to all listeners, so do take a listen to that first if you can. Joining Pinker in conversation is David Runciman, academic and podcaster who teaches politics and history at Cambridge University. The two discuss the themes within Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now, focusing on whether optimism should still play a role in our increasingly turbulent and polarised times. If you'd like to hear this episode ad-free and support our mission to foster honest debate and compelling conversations, head over to intelligencesquared.com slash membership or subscribe to our channel on Apple. Now let's jump back into the conversation with Steven Pinker and David Runciman. We rejoin them talking about the roots of scepticism and why too much of it can be a tricky proposition. So one Humean idea, which I take to be one of the core ideas of the Enlightenment is scepticism. Um, Absolutely. It, it, yes. has, it has many of its roots in kind of Cartesian skepticism. Indeed. So skepticism is a powerful but sort of dangerous doctrine. I mean, it's hard to control it. It's clear, I'm completely persuaded we need more skepticism in the world because there is too much credulity and superstition around, particularly around certain kinds of, I don't want to call them conspiracy theories, but sort of attempts to explain the world by making it all join up and it doesn't join up. On the other hand, you know, skepticism is something that could be applied across the board to many well-established institutions, liberal democracy, capitalism, how they currently function, things that are taken for granted the world needs to, to be this way. Mm-hmm. Skepticism is a dangerous idea. Do well, we, do we, you know, should we not really let it loose? Well, we, we ought to be skeptical of everything, including liberal democracy and capitalism, but we shouldn't be nihilistic. We should allow no, our – No, and it's not the same as nihilism. Yeah. No, we, we should allow our opinions to be informed by the, the best evidence that we can gather. Uh, we should calibrate them beforehand to how, how a priori plausible they are based on everything that we already know and then update them according to what, what we observe. So yes, we should be skepticism about, skeptical about everything, but we also should uh, – in, in an uncertain world in which our knowledge will always be uncertain, calibrate our degree of credence uh, of an idea to how much evidence there is for it. Do you think we're skeptical enough, for instance, about the institutions of contemporary democracy? Because that, you know, many of them are – particularly in the established democracies, are, are really entrenched to the point that we think, well, this is how democracy ought to go. It goes through these institutions functioning in this way. We expect it to go along with sort of political parties and so on and so on. Should we be more skeptical about some of the assumptions we make about how politics works? 
Well, we should about some, for, uh, particularly in the United States where we're locked into a number of uh, archaic features of our political system, such as the Electoral College, um, perhaps such as the, as the Senate, such as lifetime tenure for Supreme Court justices, such as setting political districts by state legislatures, mm-hmm. which are obviously pathological. Uh, and so we shouldn't just accept them because uh, we've lived with them for, for 250 years. Um, on the other hand, I think there's a, there is a lot of um, uh, something that goes beyond skepticism to a kind of, uh, I think, an ignorant uh, cynicism about our institutions that comes from a failure to look at evidence that would compare them to their alternatives. So, for example, there is, of course, always justified skepticism about uh, markets and capitalism. Uh, on the other hand, they ought to be compared with uh, the alternatives, such as totalitarian top-down planning. Uh, likewise, liberal democracy has always will have uh, flaws, which always ought to be uh, questioned. On the other hand, if we compare liberal democracies with the alternatives, we see liberal democracies uh, are pretty pleasant places to live. And I think that a lot of the uh, current climate, particularly in universities, is just factually ignorant of the comparison between our current institutions and the uh, real world alternatives. And so every flaw and shortcoming is considered to be um, uh, thoroughgoing rot. And there's, uh, I think, far too much a willingness to tear down our institutions on the assumption that every shortcoming is a uh, a fatal flaw. Uh, So I've made this case in relation to climate, climate change. The skepticism is, is necessary. Um, but skepticism too often these days collapses into cynicism. So you can be skeptical about features of the science because science is an inherently skeptical pursuit. But cynicism is always to ask the sort of who benefits question, the assumption that you know, with any large political program, the question is in whose interests is this being said? Who, who are the scientists working for? On whose side is this case being made? And we live currently in a deeply cynical world, right? I mean, so yes. much of our politics is being driven by the question, if you're saying that, it must be because dot, dot, dot. Uh, right? it, it, indeed. And, and skepticism is not the same thing as cynicism. Cynicism is itself a form of dogmatism if it consists of uh, rejecting any possibility of, uh, of improvement, if it consists of imputing the worst, mor- worst motives to uh, everyone. Now, of course, when one ought to question motives, one should look for conflicts of interest, but you can't uh, a priori assume that everyone is acting out of the, their worst instincts. And I don't think we want to spend too much time talking about Donald Trump, but Trump is the master of politics in the age of cynicism, I would say. Oh, indeed. He ran on a, uh, a deeply, deeply cynical program. Dy- dystopian um, program, uh, one that was uh, – um, in opposition to the idea of progress, its its motto was "Make America Great Again." So it was reactionary in the literal sense of looking back to an idealized past that has been uh, corrupted, uh, rather than looking ahead to ways in which we can solve our current problems. Uh, of course, deeply uh, contemptuous of uh, knowledge and, and uh, expertise. Uh, deeply contemptuous of our current institutions, such as uh, organizations of international cooperation, the press, uh, indeed government itself. So one striking feature of contemporary politics is there are two big social divides uh, that you can see at play. You can see it in Britain around Brexit um, with the election of Donald Trump. So one is an educational divide. It really makes a difference how people vote 
you can ask the question, did you or did you not go to university or college? And that's a very strong indicator. Indeed. The other is generational. Mm -hmm. There seems to be a growing gap between some of the perspectives of the young and the old in a world in which people are getting older and older. On the generational one, maybe come on to the educational one in a second. On the generational one, what do you think is driving it? And on some questions, young people are clearly, again, I don't want to use the pessimism word, but they're clearly profoundly worried about the trends they see moving into their future. Are they wrong? I mean, what, indeed. Yeah, they um, are wrong. No, no, no I'm sorry. <laughs> indeed, you, indeed they are a, worried. They're indeed, worried. There, indeed, there is a uh, educational uh, gradient in support for populism, a, a generational one, and an a, um, urban-rural uh, gradient, uh, maybe even stronger than the other two in terms of its predictive power. Yeah, so I th- so there are there, there is, uh, I think, pessimism in uh, young, younger cohorts. Not all of them. Again, it's always dangerous to yeah. generalize about an entire generation. Uh, because they've lived through the the Great Recession, through uh, a lot of um, dysfunction in in government, particularly in, in the United States, and because of a, a change in conventional wisdom among the educated as to uh, the the major challenges facing us, the strengths and weaknesses of alternative political systems, the uh, I, I think there's been such a uh, an ethic that the uh, the, the the only evil is racism and sexism and her, 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 transphobia, homophobia, that all of moral progress consists of a struggle against these evils, uh, that that is the uh, main challenge facing us today, and that uh, any instance uh, or, or evidence of racism, sexism, or homophobia is an indictment of the entire society. It's a little – it's different than the, the uh, narrative that uh, previous generation – um, grew up with, which is the say the the tension between uh, open free societies and uh, totalitarian dictatorships, uh, that uh, or the um, advantages of uh, uh, scientifically sophisticated societies over uh, primitive ones that you can almost barely say that without being accused of some kind of uh, prejudice, and so if you uh, believe that the our, our main challenge is fighting racism, which is a, a very uh, pervasive belief in uh, the uh, millennials and, and uh, Generation Z, uh, then uh, there doesn't seem to be much to admire about our society, particularly if you're ignorant of the fact that, it, that in reality, racism, sexism and, sexism, and homophobia have all declined. But because of the increased sensitivity to them, uh, there's a misconception that they have increased. And there's a, a lack of appreciation of the the, the um, fact that uh, peaceful liberal democracies, for all their flaws, are actually much better places to live than alternatives, such as war torn countries where uh, where cholera runs rampant, such as uh, right wing or left wing uh, totalitarian dictatorships. That has been perhaps as a byproduct of the fact that we've gone through a generation of relative peace of uh, end of the Cold War that isn't part of the consciousness of the younger generations. And so there's lack of uh, an appreciation of the uh, the huge benefits of um, liberal market democracies. So is that also a kind of experiential question in that as one tracks, let's call it progress, it goes up and down. And th- there are periods where people are confronted much more directly with the choices. And then there are periods where people move away from that confrontation. I mean, traditionally, it's been in the form of wars. Um, an overt conflict, and in generations of relative peace? 
uh, there is a forgetfulness. There's a forgetfulness. <clears throat> there's also uh, because it's it's uh, there's something unseemly about blaming th- things on the kids today. Something that I'm acutely conscious of, having lived through it when uh, our parents blamed everything on on uh, us baby boomers, and so. Uh, I, I don't want to fall into the trap of saying, oh, those those uh, ignorant millennials and uh, uh, iGens, as they're sometimes called. Because uh, par- uh, part of the, the blame actually goes to, to my generation, the yeah. baby boomers, who now are the professors and the deans and the editors and the, uh, the op-ed writers. <clears throat> and some of our worst 60s and 70s political ideology has now become the establishment, uh, in- including the idea that, that the uh, only problem facing us today is racism and sexism. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. If it's the case that, again, we can't generalize about generations and, and even within generations, I mean, there's another generation which has been characterized as Generation K, which is the kind of 15 to 22, 23-year-olds. So that's K after Katniss from The Hunger Games. Okay. Who apparently when they're polled, see the world that they're about to enter into as a kind of Hobbesian war of all against all. They genuinely see a future which looks like that. They are also a generation. So we have a generation of people who are in their 20s and 30s who have only known the digital revolution in their lives. But we have a generation who've only known the kind of social network revolution, the the Facebook revolution in their lives. Might that have a a more profound impact than we realize on 
very, very different perceptions of you know, what human experience is, what's possible. Because it's, it's so young, it's so fresh. We don't actually know what impact living in this world to, to be connected in this way is having on people. But it, you know, there might be a sea change at work here. Uh, there might be. And, and I, the part that I would agree about is that we don't know. It's just, it's just <laughs> the too, it's too recent. Bit. Yes, right. Uh, it's too recent. I, I think there is a tendency now in uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the blogosphere, the commentariat, to uh, blame every problem on social media. Whatever it is, it's social Facebook's media's fault. Faith, Facebook's to blame. Yes, <laughs> specifically, but, but but also Twitter and yeah. uh, and so on. So uh, I I think there's too much of, it, of, of that uh, uh, lazy blaming. Uh, surely there are revolutionary changes that have been unleashed by social media, and, and for many of them, since we have not yet had enough time for. Uh, society to develop countermeasures to some of the excesses of social media, the, kind of the, the immune response, we, uh, we really don't know how it's going to shake out. But part of it presumably is, and again, we don't know how we're going to counter this, a relative sense of powerlessness. I mean, these are very empowering technologies in lots of ways. They give people extraordinary voice and ability to amplify opinions and so on. But I think there's also a, a widely held sense that they're also disempowering, that people become data points, that they are at the mercy of technologies. Not only they don't understand how they work, they're not even conscious of how they are being played by these technologies. I mean, we're in that phase now, and that feeling of powerlessness is real, I think, for many people. I, I guess, but the, some of the powerlessness also comes from quirks of the electoral system, particularly in the United States, where disproportionate power goes to rural areas, uh, money has... Uh, clearly too much of an influence in, in politics, where a minority of people wanted Donald Trump to be president, but he's president. Uh, uh, for many, many policies, a majority of people are opposed to them. But because of the because of gerrymandering, because of the overweighting of rural areas, because of the overweighting of small states, uh, because of the outsized influence of money in politics, the popular opinions don't get implemented. And um, that may be more of a source of powerlessness than the fact that Facebook sells your data to advertisers. And in the broad story that you tell in, in this book and also the, the previous book about the decline of violence, where you, you track global trends, you also track more local trends, and, and they, they're, most of them, particularly with the violence story, are pointing in the same direction. But of course, there are also pockets of experience and, and people living in places that are going the other way. The global story about inequality, we're living in a much more globally equal world, the global story about the tens and hundreds of millions of people who have come out of extreme poverty amazingly recently. Telling that story in the affluent West, where even within a society like the United States, there are increasingly very, very divergent experiences of this kind of economy and this kind of political system. It, it, I mean, are there politicians skillful enough? Are there communicators skillful enough to make the global case, you know, that this is broadly a good news story, persuasive for people whose experience is recently bad news? Well, it's easy to exaggerate um, the effect of personal experience. There's a huge divergence between people's personal experience and their uh, opinions on the society that they live in, sometimes called the optimism gap or the perils of perception is the, the title of a new book by um, Bobby Duffy from the Ipsos Mori Polling Foundation, where on just about any question you ask, uh, people will are far more positive about their own 
uh, state than, than they are about their society as a whole and their neighbors. If you ask people, how happy are you? Most people say, well, I'm, I'm reasonably happy. If you ask them, how happy are, is a typical person in your country? They'll say, oh, they're miserable. They're living, le- leading lives of quiet desperation. Uh, how safe is your neighborhood? Oh, pretty safe. How safe is your country? Oh, you can't walk down the streets without getting uh, attacked. Uh, and there's another yeah. version of that, which is, do you like politicians? No. Do you like, do you like your, your representative? Yeah, he's a, he or she's quite nice. Yeah, I keep voting for him <laughs> or she or her. So, so yeah, so it's not just uh, experience. It is also a conventional wisdom spread through op-eds and, and commentaries and television and, uh, and, and, and the internet. So it's, um, it can't just be uh, that uh, we've got to imp- wait for people's lots to improve because people's people – already are better off than they think everyone else is. Uh, it also has to be part of the, uh, our, our, our common understanding. For example, the, uh, people are systematically mistaken in their belief about the trajectory of, of, uh, of war and of, of poverty and of crime. Uh, if people are, mis- are factually mistaken about the major facts about which way the world is going, then a lot of, uh, of um, deplorable uh, opinions will follow. So uh, I think we do have to get the conversation. By we, I mean everyone who has the public ear, uh, the people who write op-eds, the people who, uh, who, who appear on television, uh, and all of us in sharing uh, articles with, with one another. Uh, but in, in response to more directly to your question, is it possible for a politician in particular to have this uh, Tell the global story as it Yeah, were. well, we, we had one. Barack Obama was uh, adamant uh, about the, the fact that, that uh, overall things were improving. And in fact, I stole a quote from him for as the um, uh, uh, epigraph for one of my sections. If you had to choose a time to be born and you didn't know who you'd be or where you'd be, you'd choose now. And of course, his um, uh, sometimes ridiculed campaign slogan was hope and change. Uh, but again, it wasn't a, it wasn't optimism in the sense of just a sunny disposition. It was based in his uh, in facts that he often um, alluded to. In fact, I was in touch with his speechwriters about some of them uh, on the fact that there are that, that the world is not spiraling down, downward, uh, and in fact that there are, that our institutions are doing some good. And it's the American right who is, of course, cynical about the the ability of government to do anything. And so it's not shocking that a liberal progressive politician would be uh, would remind people of what government can and and, and uh, has accomplished uh, but so it, it, it can be done and Obama was uh, despite uh, <clears throat> hatred from some sectors he was on the whole a successful and popular politician why do you think with with your book the better angels of our nature which tells the violent story I was really struck by the pushback to that people it made people angry to be told that violence was in decline. It, it, it evoked really strong passions. I mean, I thought it was a very, very persuasive book. And it told the long story, the medium story, and the short story. And these stories, they're not the same story, but they overlap. And yet, it made some people yes, well, furious, right? Enlightenment now, even more so. Uh, uh, yes. where it would But judge. you know, violence, who, why, why does it make people angry to be told that the world is less violent than they think. Often because they are committed to a political ideology that is uh, is, is driven by the belief that things are getting worse. Uh, there are left-wing and right-wing versions of it. There, there is the, um, the, the leftist version that the institutions of capitalism have immiserated the world and have uh, <clears throat> led to a, a nightmare of exploitation and uh, uh, post-colonial... Um, uh, dominance, 
uh, and that the uh, all of Western liberal capitalist um, democracy is um, rotten at the core and deserves to be um, pulverized and replaced by something completely different. Uh, and there is a right-wing version of it, which is uh, that the the problem is not um, capitalism; the problem is uh, liberal elites, uh, and that they have led to a uh, a nightmare of crime and promiscuity and pornography and abortion uh, and um, uh, globalization, uh, and pointing out that actually. In the aggregate, these the institutions that we have now have actually made things better, not worse. Um, undermines a basic belief of certain political ideologues, and there, and there, there are a lot of them. So, one last question: uh, the United States and Britain. One thing they have in common in Britain it's it's more recent, and the, in both cases it's relatively recent. Is that overall life expectancy is falling, um, and and it's there's evidence in Britain in the last year or so. Um, which is new for societies like ours, um, that some of these trends have turned the other way. It's a very short-term phenomenon. And it's a very t- – when you say reversal, people think that there's been a U-turn. No. Uh, what it means is it's, it's down by, you know, by, by a month or so, averaged over a lot of people who are uh, overdosing on opi- opioids. In the exactly. So within States. that, again, for each country, that global yeah. set of statistics, there are pockets of real yeah. suffering and misery and – bits of our societies where we are talking about a kind of reversal or a, again, the phrase left behind is the wrong one, but a, a kind of falling away from the overall story. Um, this is politically, apart from anything else, really driving a lot of what's going on at the moment, both cause and effect, actually, I think. It is driving some of it because the uh, the, the demographic sectors that are most vulnerable to these uh, to this decline in public health, to alcoholism and uh, uh, drug abuse uh, are often the ones that are most supportive of authoritarian populism. Um, although it's uh, – clearly they are not numerous enough to swing an election. So it go, certainly goes beyond them. But that, that is certainly one a big part of the base. Uh, and it's uh, – there's, there's no contradiction between noting that there are severe problems in particular times and places and the idea that there has been progress overall – uh, again, going back to the beginning of our conversation where people confuse the issue of whether there has been progress with something called optimism, where optimism is sometimes uh, tacitly uh, equated with the belief that everything gets better for everyone everywhere all the time. Uh, that's not what progress consists of. That, that would be a miracle and that, that can, just cannot happen. Uh, the, um, uh, the default – uh, of uh, human history is not that progress happens. Progress doesn't happen. Progress is a very special state of affairs, one that I attribute to. Uh, I use the Enlightenment as an overall rubric, but just the, um, the the idea that if we understand the world and if we uh, set our goal to uh, improve human well-being, we can gradually succeed. Most societies, most times and places, don't believe that. They don't believe that we that that uh, they don't prioritize human well-being, or they don't believe that we're capable of understanding the, the forces of nature well enough to do so. Uh, the and left to uh, its own devices, the world doesn't get better. There's, uh, as I emphasize at the beginning of Enlightenment, now the second law of thermodynamics says that, that uh, uh, without the input of uh, energy or information. Uh, things fall apart. There are more ways for things to go wrong than to go right. 
And the process of evolution, which is what shaped our brains, didn't shape them for wisdom or happiness, but rather for uh, competition. And so human nature, uh, unaided, is not going to lead to progress. It's only if we sign on to these somewhat exotic ideas that, uh, that there is a truth, that we can uh, try to uh, attain it, uh, although never being certain of it, that we can understand nature by framing hypotheses and testing them, that we ought to set as our goal the well-being of men, women, and children. If we do all of these things, then um, we have a reasonable expectation that we can sometimes succeed. That package of ideas is, uh, uh, is unusual uh, to the extent that we continue to embrace it. We might continue to improve people's well-being, and if we don't, then we probably won't. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. It was produced by Daniel ben Corin and edited by Tom Hall. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com or tweet us at intelligence2. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.